0: Over a 10-year period, 90 deaths, 3,200 incidents of abuse and neglect statewide. An investigation of dangers at Texas daycare centers today on The Standard.
1: Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio, with support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No
0: surprises. I'm David Brown. Alarming findings about the safety of Texas daycare centers in a year-long investigation by the Austin American statesman, one that has led to a legal battle with state officials. We'll hear from the investigative team behind the report. Also healing harmonicas? What a Texas researcher discovered to help people with COPD. And the week that was in Texas politics? Plus a whole lot more. The TGI Friday edition of the Texas Standard gets started right after this. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on the 7th day of December. I'm David Brown. Thanks for spending a bit of your Friday with us. Thousands of Texans stood along the train tracks connecting Houston to College Station yesterday afternoon in the rain as the train carrying George Herbert Walker Bush made its way to his final resting place. The Houston Chronicle had an evocative account of people in small towns saluting from the beds of pickup trucks and standing on camping stools in their ponchos, quietly waving flags and posters and sharing stories as they recreated a scene reminiscent of the last presidential funeral train in 1969, the one that carried the body of Dwight David Eisenhower. A happy and sad moment, said one eight-year-old huddled under an umbrella as he and his family witnessed an historic passing through Old Town Spring. Much has been said and written over the past week of Mr. Bush's years in Odessa and his career in the oil business. He moved there in 1948, and ever since that time, the U.S. has been a net importer of petroleum products. But in a rather remarkable coincidence, we are now learning that, for the first time in 70 years, the U.S. has become a net exporter of petroleum products. Good news for Texas if the economy doesn't slow down too quickly. A new jobs report out this morning showing unemployment holding steady at 3.7%. But job growth, slowing. One of the challenges in this economic climate has been finding enough workers, but for many of those workers themselves, the cost of working is steeply driven up by the cost of daycare. Now, more cause for concern. A new investigation by the Austin American statesman, a year in the making, is sounding multiple alarm bells about the safety of daycare in Texas. Joining us now in the studio, Tony Plohetsky and Sean collins Walsh, two members of the Statesman team investigating an alarming series of incidents at Texas daycare centers and what the state is and is not doing to respond to allegations of abuse, poor conditions and child deaths. The Statesman series is titled Unwatched. Tony and Sean, welcome to the Texas Standard Studios. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, that's uh, the voice of Tony Plohetsky and uh, Tony I want to turn first to you uh we shouldn't bury the lead as they say in the news business. What What are the numbers that you found here?
2: Well, the numbers were in fact striking to us on our team as we really started analyzing tens of thousands of records that we obtained from the state. One of the key findings is that daycares across Texas over the past decade have been cited 3,200 times for abuse and neglect. We looked at cases in which children are getting injured, some have died in daycares, but one of the most striking things we found that has never really been analyzed by anyone, no organization or the state itself, Mm -hmm. is the number of children who are sexually abused at daycares. And we found a number from state records showing that 450 cases uh, the state has investigated of child sexual abuse over the past decade in the state of Texas.
0: Sean, I want to ask you about this because I thought that the state had a kind of task force or some unit uh... that specifically worked on issues of, of for instance uh, sexual abuse or or uh, uh... certainly investigating deaths and
3: that sort of thing What what's the score well the state used to have a special investigative unit within the uh... health agency that looked for illegal daycares and illegal daycares are where a lot of these incidents happen abuse and neglect and death And uh, illegal daycares are ones that are run by people who either don't know that they're supposed to register their business with the state and follow regulations, or they don't bother to. I think an important aspect of this is that when it comes to the
0: existence of these illegal daycare centers, quite often you find situations where parents just can't afford to pay for daycare centers that are fully licensed, right? I mean, that's another fund,
2: And that is one of the main things that we talk about as well as how the economic factors that so many parents across the state of Texas, but frankly also here in the Austin area face, and that is the affordability of daycare and the unfortunate reality about that is that it can drive children into these illegal, unlicensed daycares that are not regulated very much by the state, if at all. And and so those are situations that really can give rise then to children getting injured or killed in those facilities. I
0: don't understand. If this is going on, why is it that that unit that you were describing there, Sean, why, why is it that that, that that is no longer happening, that those investigations
3: are not continuing? In September 2017, the Health and Human Services Commission shut down the unit, which had been approved by the legislature just four years before at the request of the health agency. Uh, So it was a shock to some lawmakers that we told that it had been shut down. And what the agency says is that uh, either A, the illegal daycares have become so savvy that they were hard to find after they started looking for them, which uh, seems hard to believe for us because I spent some time on Craigslist, found a number of illegal daycares, or at least daycares that don't appear in the state's database of legal daycares. I called a few. Uh, we got five on the phone or over email to say either, yeah, I never heard of that. I didn't know I was supposed to sign up, or I haven't gotten around to it, or something to that effect.
0: Why would an agency say that we no longer need to be investigating illegal daycare? I mean, have have you received any sort of plausible explanation for that
3: we've gotten a couple explanations one was the one i just mentioned about you know it it was a waste of time because it's hard to find them Mm -hmm. another one is that uh... there are more and more federal requirements for the child care subsidies block grant coming down that that required more time more personnel for compliance for those rules Mm and that they had to shift resources to that task. It's
0: my understanding that your investigative unit here, Tony, spent something like uh, basically looking, spent a year looking at 10 years worth of records That's and right. some 40,000 documents, and still the state's holding back on some information, right?
2: We are, in fact, engaged in a legal battle with the state right now. We are trying to obtain death records that the state has been, not given us that we believe should be made public. The statesman and its corporate owner, Gatehouse Media, has sued the state. We are in the process of that litigation right now and, frankly, hope that we prevail.
0: You know, it, it, Sean, I'm I'm just now thinking. It seems like I saw uh, uh, an article that said that the attorney general had weighed in on this very
3: issue of whether or not these were confidential documents. This is one of those funny instances of state government where The Attorney General is on our side and on their side in a way. The Attorney General, by state law, um, sort of adjudicates or the first round of adjudicating uh, records disputes. And we, you know, uh, apparently had some compelling arguments because the Records Division of the AG's office sided with us uh, over a couple of the key legal questions and also found that the Department of Family and Protective Services violated the Public Information Act by failing to respond to us within certain deadlines. On the other hand, the AG's office is also defending the agency in court. Another division of the AG's office, because uh, we have sued them to get even more records than they, uh, you know, they have been ordered to release per the other order.
2: But by the way, it is. Rare. It is highly unusual, not customary at all for the Attorney General's office, I think, just over years of covering Mm -hmm. government here Mm -hmm. in the state, for the AG's office to agree with us at at different times that records should be released that we are asking for.
0: You mentioned, Tony, that uh, there have been some deaths, even some deaths. How many deaths have you been able to ascertain have taken place over the past 10 years in daycare centers in Texas?
2: We found nearly 90 dead from abuse and neglect. One of the cases that we highlight is really compelling. Uh, It is a case out of Houston. It involves a woman named Shauna Diaz who really has become uh, one of the faces for our work. Her baby boy was at a daycare. Um, She was called to the hospital uh, one morning because he was in, in medical distress. She was told by the daycare one thing happened, but she just could not believe the circumstances uh, about how he died. And so she launched her own investigation. She filed a lawsuit, obviously hired a civil lawyer. And it was not until that attorney was deposing daycare workers as part of that case that the truth really began to emerge about what had happened to her to her baby and how he was left uh, to sleep in an improper way and in a dangerous way. And it was not until those facts came to light that law enforcement reopened their investigation.
0: Uh, I know that this is already online. We'll have a link to it at texastandard.org. Has there been any reaction from officials?
2: Well, I think one of the reasons we frankly did this work was to create change among daycares and and daycare regulations. And we have heard from the Texas governor, uh, Greg Abbott, who has said very publicly at this point that this is something that he is looking at and taking seriously. But I know we've also been uh, in touch with Senator Kirk Watson, who is also vowing to uh, get behind some potential legislation to correct some of the problems that we found as part of this
0: year-long investigative pursuit. This story is unfolding at statesman.com. Tony Plohetsky and Sean Collins Walsh have been speaking with us. They're two members of the Statesman team that's been investigating a series of incidents at Texas daycare centers statewide. Gentlemen, thanks so much for stopping by our studios to talk with us. Thanks Thanks so much. Thanks for having us.
4: He's back, our social media editor, Wells Dunbar. Hi, David. We're following the conversation around that Austin American-Statesman investigation into Texas daycares via Twitter. David Fagan says the series shows the cost of Texas failing to put any resources into childcare. Legislators must now improve standards, transparency, and accountability to ensure that families can access safe and quality early learning programs. We're also doing our best to track fast-moving developments in Washington, D.C., where Trump has nominated uh, William Barr as Mm -hmm. attorney general. Barr served as Attorney General under President George H.W. Bush, who, as we know, was laid to rest in College Station yesterday, another example of his legacy reverberating to this day. Another story out of Washington, a potential new peek into Robert Mueller's Russia investigation as new filings are due in court. On our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Texas Standard, J. Ryan Lancaster says he's looking forward to the Cohen and Manafort sentencing memos, referring there to Michael Cohen and, Cohen and Paul Manafort, yeah, those two today. Trump associates. Yeah, yeah. Uh, those, uh, Details due in court. So I don't know. You know, it could be interesting. We saw that with Michael Flynn, where the, the sen- sentencing memo was released, and I think 80% of it was mm-hmm. redacted. So yeah. I don't know if we'll yeah. be looking forward to a similar thing today. But As I said, a lot going on today in yep. D.C. Uh, and around the rest of... Of the nation, so we're doing our best to monitor it. I'll be back with more from social media later in the show.
0: Seeing another uh, possible nominee, Heather Nauert, as U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. We'd love to know what's making news in your part of Texas. Tweet us at Texas Standard.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology, bringing cancer-fighting treatments and 300 Oakland clinical trials to 26,000 patients in Austin each year so they have access to care near the support of their loved ones. More at TexasOncology.com. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, partnering with SAP to deliver business-by-design supply chain solutions for cost transparency and process integration in mid-market companies. More at SoftwareAsPromised.com.
0: Business and your money on The Standard. I'm David Brown. Hundreds of Dallasites gathered at the famous dance hall Gillies last night, not looking for love in all the wrong places, you urban cowboy fans, but rather looking for answers to questions about a long-promised park along the Trinity River. Gillies was the site for the unveiling of design plans for a natural space spanning some 200 acres between the Margaret McDermott and Ron Kirk bridges near downtown. As Kate Yare's Bill Ziebel tells us, the $150 million project is designed to survive and thrive even when the river floods.
5: Trinity Park Conservancy CEO Brent Brown told the packed room a stone's throw from the river that flooding's been part of the Trinity since before Dallas was Dallas. While city leaders changed the river's path in the 1930s, it still floods. Embracing that was a guiding principle. Work with the river. Keep it natural. Enhance it. The landscape architect is Michael Van Valkenburg, who's worked on other parks across the country that get flooded and survive. He said some park objects, like a kid's playground, will get built on high ground. The low ground will belong to plants that love water.
0: What's really important is water in the root zone.
6: So what we're really talking about is this ability to survive in anaerobic conditions when the air is diminished in the soil.
0: Willows love water. They're like always right at the river's edge.
5: Native oaks, generally upland species, he says, go on high ground. That's just a simple example. Bigger changes are afoot that will alter what are now just a few bike paths and open land. How big a change?
0: Like night and day. Gonna be an entirely different experience. It's amazing now, but it's singular. It's a space defined with levees, little river in the middle,
6: and it's dead flat. And this will be contoured and irregular and clumps of plants and open areas. It will be beautiful.
5: One thing that won't be there? Roads. This is the first Trinity Park plan in more than a decade without a highway between the levees. Groundbreaking set for 2020 with the park's opening plan for 2022. I'm Bill Zebel for the Texas Standard.
1: Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a worker's comp provider, ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com.
0: And you are listening to the Texas Standard. You've probably seen these before notices at your local Target telling you the car seat you bought a month ago has been recalled. Shopping for letters? Recall there, too. VW's diesels? Ditto. Car airbags? Yep. But what about when medical devices are recalled? Over the last two decades, the U.S. has recalled 26,700 of them. That's according to Mexicanos contra la corrupción. We learned about that thanks to an investigative team of journalists in Mexico City working in association with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Right about now, you may be wondering why Mexican journalists are investigating medical recalls in the U.S. Well, guess where all those recalled medical products wind up? Miriam Castillo is one of the reporters on this story. Miriam, welcome to Texas Standard.
7: Hi, thank you very much.
0: As I understand it, those products are turning up in Mexico and other parts of the world. Are are Mexican patients in danger?
7: Yes, in Mexico, we found that the um, agency of public health, like the regulatory agency, this agency doesn't recall a lot of devices. So we only had two recalls in almost 20 years.
0: Two recalls in 20 years compared with 26,000 recalls in the United States. So, what yes. do Mexican officials uh, say about why there have been only two recalls in, in Mexico?
7: They say that the devices are safe, and if there's a rupture or there is a malfunction, they are supervising, but they didn't find uh, elements to recall a device. They say the industry have a lot of control, and the, the thing that we found is that the patient here in Mexico doesn't have information. We know that a recall doesn't mean that all the devices have to fail. But here in Mexico, we don't know which devices are failing. I see. So
0: Now, let me, let me ask you, uh, because you mentioned that another reason why Mexican patients in particular may be so vulnerable is that Many of these devices are assembled in Mexico. Explain that.
7: The manufacturers are based in in Mexico, and it's like two process. FDA supervises all the process in the manufacturers here in Mexico. Right. But Mexican authorities doesn't supervise the line of production that are going to commercials here in Mexico. Sometimes in a same factory, there's a line for the products that are going to export to FDA and the United States and another country, and there's another line which they make the devices that are selling here in Mexico. I see. And the processes are different. The quality are different. There are five of seven people to supervise a lot of devices, so it's complicated.
0: Now, let me ask, uh, you were you, you part of a worldwide team of journalists, uh, more than 200 uh, who conducted this investigation called the Implant Files. And your investigation found that most countries are in a similar situation as Mexico. You just have a handful of countries regulating medical devices, the U.S., Canada, Brazil, among them. Why the reluctance to regulate?
7: I I think it's, um, it's a lot of lobbying. I think it's a lot of money in between in the negotiation and something like that. We are like a weak market, but we are a huge market. There's a lot of people they have a chronic disease, and there's a big, big market. So we found it's more easy to them to help the enterprises and have a, an income, a regular income, because the inversion of that uh, enterprises is it's big and it's right. getting bigger.
0: I see what you're saying, but now w- one issue is whether or not these companies are just lobbying, in other words, to get laws that are favorable. It's another thing if there are payoffs involved, and that's corruption. So is there any evidence of actual corruption?
7: Uh, there were bribes, and, and they have a, a, a lot of contracts, but... Here doesn't punish the bribes or corruption. Here there's, Mexico, there's
0: not there's not punishment for the bribes. The bribes are are exposed, and there's not punishment for them. Yes, I see exactly. Uh, do you know? I mean, there have been class action suits against certain uh, companies manufacturing medical devices here in the U.S. Can patients say in Mexico join those lawsuits?
7: No, here in Mexico, the justice system is. It's hard to say that it's fault of the device. You have to prove it, and it's complicated, mm-hmm. because generally if something fails, the company comes to the hospital and gets the device, and they check them, oh, etc.
0: I see. So, so the,
7: evidence the evidence disappears. Is hard. Yes, it's yeah. hard to get.
0: Miriam Castillo is a reporter with Mexicanos contra la Corrupción, an investigative team of journalists in Mexico City. Her latest story was prepared in association with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. It's called the Implant Files. Ms. Castillo, thank you so much for speaking with us on the Texas Standard. Thank you. Taking a quick look at weather radar across the state, uh, I think we can sum this up in one word. Yuck. It's going to be wet, at least for the start of the weekend, and we could expect uh, some heavy downpours in central and southeastern Texas. Keep it here on this station for the very latest. Of course, we got the Texas Roundup just around the corner, so stick around.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you.
8: From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. Texas lawmakers and Congress are backing legislation to help local communities identify missing migrants along the U.S.-Mexico border. U.S. Representatives Will Hurd and Vicente Gonzalez introduced a bill in the House, and U.S. Senators John Cornyn and Ted Cruz filed a companion bill in the Senate. Marfa Public Radio's Carlos Morales has more.
5: The bill, known as the
9: Missing Persons and Unidentified Remains Act, would expand what kinds of agencies are eligible for grants to improve the reporting of both unidentified and missing people. The legislation would also allow for grant money to cover costs for things like hiring additional DNA case analysts and technicians and purchasing state-of-the-art forensic equipment. Through the bill, the Border Patrol would also be able to purchase rescue beacons, which officials say can help reduce migrant deaths on the southern border. Over the years, counties along the Texas-Mexico border have recovered hundreds of unidentified remains. In Marfa,
5: I'm Carlos Morales.
8: The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is partnering with the city of Austin to help improve dockless scooter safety and enforcement. KUT's Dahlia Jones has more on the first-of-its-kind project.
10: The Austin Transportation Department, Austin Public Health and the CDC will look at 37 EMS calls as well as 68 scooter injuries that occurred between September and November. The study hopes to improve existing dockless mobility regulations. Robert Spiller is the director of ATD.
5: We want to make sure that, that we truly take a deep dive into the health data to make sure uh, of the information we're getting.
10: Austin has almost 12,000 authorized dockless devices operating in the city. City Council is expected to meet over the recommendations from the
8: study by next spring. Delia Jones, KUT News. Today is Pearl Harbor Day, and in just a few days, there's another anniversary born out of the atrocities of World War II. Monday marks 70 years since the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The United Nations enacted the document on December 10, 1948. A central Texas group will be commemorating this historic milestone over the weekend at the state's capitol. Carolyn Parkers with the Ethical Society of Austin, she says they plan to read all 30 articles in the declaration. It begins with this first article, the first right. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. The reading will take place on Sunday afternoon on the south steps of the Capitol. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these
1: Texas Standard headlines comes from the law firm of Baron Adler, Clough, and Odo, handling eminent domain and condemnation cases throughout Texas, protecting private property rights for over 30 years. Baronadler.com.
0: This is the Texas Standard. The largest conservative synagogue in the U.S. is where? If you answered Texas, then here's the follow-up. Guess the city. Some 2,300 families are part of the congregation of Beth Yeshurun a temple that has thrived in Houston for decades. If you're somewhat surprised by its size and location, then perhaps that underscores the significance of an effort at Rice University to bring attention to Judaism's history in South Texas. Josh Furman is the director of the Houston Jewish History Archive. Josh, welcome to the Texas Standard.
9: Thank you so much.
0: I'm not sure if a lot of people would think of Houston as having one of the largest Jewish congregations in the U.S. Tell us a little bit about the congregation and why this is so important to your effort.
9: Well, the congregation was originally founded in uh, 1891, so it's well over a century old. You're exactly right. I think when most people outside of Houston or Texas think about the American Jewish community or think about synagogue life, they don't think of Houston, but but in fact, Beth Yashirin is the largest synagogue uh, within the conservative denomination of Judaism, and uh, it's really incredible that we've been able to preserve its history, so much of which was affected by uh, Hurricane Harvey last August, when the synagogue flooded for the very first time.
0: Yeah, tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, I, I do know that it was badly damaged during Harvey. Uh, I guess, uh, how much of, of, of the archives were you actually able to to salvage, and, and what does this mean for the archive?
9: Well, luckily, we were able to get into the building rather quickly. There was a large team of uh, both professionals, uh, historians and archivists, as well as volunteers from the community. And even from Rice University, where I work, uh, teams of students came uh, to help in the recovery effort. Um, And we had, there's a room uh, in the uh, synagogue where we just laid out hundreds and hundreds of pieces of paper and photographs on sheets of plastic to to dry them out and and triage. And uh, because we acted quickly, we were actually able to save the vast majority of the materials. Most of this stuff, by the way, dates back to the beginning of the 20th century. Um, to the 19-teens. So there's quite a bit of history there. And, and luckily, we were able to save almost all of it.
0: So uh, the Jewish, uh, the Houston Jewish History Archive, as I understand it, is bigger than just this collection. Uh, what is it that you're hoping to do with, with this collection of artifacts? And, and in fact, can the public check it out?
9: Absolutely. So we have, as of today, over 80 collections of historical material. Much of it is related to Houston, but we're actually actively engaged in documenting the history of the entire South Texas region. So we have collections that relate to life in Galveston, in Wharton, in Schulenburg, and other um, uh, towns in the region. Uh, and the archive is uh, available to the public. It's housed in the Woodson Research Center, which is on the first floor of Fondren Library here on the Rice campus. Uh, and it's open to the public Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m.
0: It is, uh, you know, we began by talking about how most people probably wouldn't think of Houston as a particularly uh, important or or, or large uh, Place for uh, Jewish uh, folks in in the United States, and I wonder why that is. I wonder. I mean, surely you've given some thought to the to the perceptions and the stereotypes and the assumptions that people have made about uh, South Texas and and how that fits into the story of Jews there.
9: I think that the the national perception, both uh, within the Jewish community but also outside, is that. You know, most Jewish immigrants, when they came to this country in the 19th century, in the beginning of the 20th century, right, they came through Ellis Island. And for the most part, they stayed on the East Coast. They stayed in New York City. They went to Philadelphia. They went to Boston. Perhaps they ventured into the Midwest, into cities such as Chicago and Cincinnati. And that was the experience of the majority of American Jews. However, to leave the story there is to really ignore the presence of Jews not only in Texas but throughout the South. Jewish immigrants came to the port of Galveston in the decade before World War I. Actually almost 10,000 Jews came through Galveston. Um, they were diverted there as part of an official program that was seeking to um, save Eastern European Jews who were laboring under a series of very oppressive conditions in the, uh, in the Russian Empire and provide them with uh, not only physical safety but economic opportunity. And so those Jews who came through Galveston, many of them stayed in Texas, but they also went on to other locations in the South and Midwest. So it's a really important chapter um, in American Jewish history that that too often, I think, gets obscured. And so one of the missions of this archive is to really not only preserve the history, but also to um, create greater awareness, um, both here in Houston and uh, beyond about the long, rich history of uh, Jews in Houston and in
0: Texas. Josh Furman is the director of the Houston Jewish History Archive, which is part of Rice University. Josh, thanks again for speaking with us on The Texas Standard.
9: My pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU where horned frogs strive to be a force for the greater good, like Professor Liren Ma, who is developing a program to make an iPhone operate as an inexpensive hearing aid. TCU, lead on.
0: This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Happy belated St. Nicholas Day, Fredericksburg. Many families with German roots marked December 5th and 6th, By putting their shoes outside their bedroom doors or hanging an empty stocking by the fireplace, hoping for sweets in the morning. Most will still celebrate Christmas Day with presents, mind you. Texas is full of holiday traditions you may not have heard of, but as Texas Public Radio's Jack Morgan tells us, lots of folks in San Antonio each year look forward to a party led by a certain pianist, band leader, and nightclub owner named Doc
6: Watkins. We have got a big band concert with strings at the Pearl Park uh, at 7.30 on Sunday night. We're going to be playing some Christmas tunes from our latest Christmas release.
0: He's talking about Christmas in Jazz, Texas, a CD released over
3: Thanksgiving.
6: Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. It's original arrangements of traditional Christmas tunes. We've got a couple of originals on there. We've got some San Antonio stuff on there, some Count Basie stuff. You know, it's, it's just it's all over the place. But we're really, really proud of it.
0: The Sunday night concert is called a Big Band Holiday Classics Concert. How big is the band?
6: It's going to be about 20 pieces. Yeah, we've got some string players from the symphony that we're adding into the mix, and full horn section and drums, guitar, bass, a few vocalists, and and, uh, and even congas.
3: Predictions of the weather say it'll be clear and cool. He agrees. This event will be exceptionally cool.
6: It's going to be a little chilly, so, you know, bring a scarf. It's going to be a great time. I'm just excited to see all the people out there. You know, whenever we get to play to a a really large crowd of a few thousand people, it's always so much fun, just the energy and the audience. And, And I love Christmas music.
3: The event is free and open to the public. For the
1: Texas Standard, this is Jack Morgan. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company. Proud to be a founding sponsor of the Texas Standard on public radio. Texas Mutual is a policyholder-owned workers' comp provider working to bring wellness into the workplace. More at WorkSafeTexas.com.
0: As musical instruments go, you'd be hard-pressed to find one as perfect in so many ways as the harmonica. It's inexpensive, it's portable, doesn't require string changes or regular tune-ups. Just drop it in your pocket and you're good to go. It's also pretty easy to learn to play. All these factors make it the perfect instrument for a newly formed group in Dallas, the Harmoniacs. But there's one more factor that's perhaps most important of all to this group. Playing it requires breath control. That's a recent clip of the Harmoniacs. What you can't tell from the audio is that some of those harmonica players are actually wearing oxygen tubes. That's because all of them are COPD patients. COPD is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. It's a lung disease that makes it hard to breathe. But a registered respiratory therapist at Baylor Scott & White Research Institute in Dallas says playing the harmonica can help patients breathe easier. Mary Hart recently presented her findings at the annual meeting of the American College of Chest Physicians, and she joins us now to talk about her findings in our Spotlight on Health project. Thanks so much for your time, Ms. Hart. We certainly do appreciate it.
10: Well, thank you for having me. How did you
0: first get this idea?
10: Well, harmonica playing in COPD groups is dates back all the way in the, in the 90s, and there wasn't any research that supported that it would really help someone that had COPD. And so we got the idea to go ahead and, and uh, study a group of patients that we had here at our Baylor, Scott & White pulmonary rehab. Primarily, we were looking at Improving muscle strength.
5: Uh huh. uh -huh.
0: I'm trying to imagine how you might go about recruiting a band. Um, (laughs) Was it was it hard? Were folks scared off because of the commitment and learning how to play a harmonica and all that kind of stuff?
10: Well, everyone, including myself, had to learn how to play the harmonica. That was the first thing. Was when I started talking to people about being a part of this research they they first said i don't play the harmonica what am i going to do and i don't read music but uh, we have a a music therapist that worked with us and i'll just have to go ahead and spill the beans she didn't play the harmonica either she played the guitar (laughs) and so she had to learn too Uh and um so we all learned together during our research project
0: that's fun Uh, but seriously what did your study end up finding
10: Well, um, before we started playing, we had all of our uh, research subjects, or our patients, come in one at a time, and we evaluated how far they could walk in six minutes. We had them blow into this machine that would measure their lung function. Mm -hmm. I also measured how strong their respiratory muscles were. And then we had a whole whole bunch of different uh, questionnaires that asked them about how short of breath they were with different activities and about their quality of life. And so once we did the training, and the training was for a good 12 weeks, mm-hmm. they played one day a week together for a couple of hours, and they were uh, encouraged to play at least five days a week for as long as they could. And most played anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour and a half on their own each day. Um, but we measured um, the thing, same things that we measured after the 12 weeks. Right, right. And we found out that they had a significant improvement in their muscle strength, their breathing muscles, which relates to them being able to do more um, and be more active and social and more independent. Um, also, their six-minute walk, which is the test we did to see how far they could walk in the six minutes, showed that they were able to walk over, um, I think it was over 50 meters more wow. than what they could. And that was very surprising to us because That's dramatic. who would have ever thought that playing a harmonica could improve your walking distance? <laughs>
0: well, now, this is this is an interesting dynamic here because, what, of course, I understand the relationship that you're describing with the harmonica and breathing into the harmonica and ha- regularly processing practicing and how that might help. But I almost wonder being together with other people and doing something that is kind of, I don't know, uplifting, I suppose, one might imagine. I wonder if there's not some kind of benefit that's 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 uh, to to all of that as well.
10: You're exactly right. The socialization that they receive from playing together and laughing and and being with other people that wear oxygen or have to stop playing because they're coughing or uh, just they get too short of breath that definitely brings a point of, of the socialization improving and that the one of the questions that we asked had several questions in fact had to do with quality of life and they all reported that they had improved quality of life They've been doing this now since they joined the group over a year ago. We finished our research, but they haven't finished playing the harmonica. So I'm very <laughs> proud of them.
0: <laughs> so uh, what, what what does happen to the group, and what happens to your research? You want to do this on a larger scale, or or what happens?
10: Exactly. When I presented at the chest conference, um, it, it was noted that there were it was too small a group to for us to be able to say that everyone that has a pulmonary rehab program or anyone that has COPD should pick up a harmonica but we already know it does benefit our patients so we're happy with that.
0: Mary Hart is a registered respiratory therapist at Baylor Scott and White Research Institute in Dallas and I suppose in many respects founder of the Harmoniacs. Mary thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard.
10: And thank you.
1: The support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the State of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org.
2: I'm Sean Petrie. I'm with the Typewriter Rodeo. In the Typewriter Rodeo, we make up poems on the spot on whatever topic people want. Vintage cameras. You people with your tiny, slim, part phone, part camera, part everything at once devices, let's just take it back a step. Let's just get a bit more focused. Because here, with this grand machine built to last, as you step under this black cloth, As you point this big box ahead, where everything is about this and this moment only, this is how you truly capture time. For the Texas Standard, I'm Sean Petrie with the Typewriter Rodeo.
1: Support for the Typewriter Radio comes from Texas Children's Hospital. Focused on outcomes in care and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital. Personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org.
0: Typewriter rodeos fueled by requests. Send us yours, Texas Standard at kut.org, and then make sure to tune in each Friday here on The Standard. You know, you can also lasso the rodeo anytime on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are served. And here we are, the first Friday of December. We couldn't end the week without talking Texas politics. Now, could we? Joining us today, Rebecca Dean, professor and chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Texas at Arlington. Welcome to The Texas Standard.
11: Thanks so much for having me.
0: The state's GOP has been getting a lot of attention of late, even from national media. Two issues here. I suppose we should start up in uh, your neck of the woods, uh, Tarrant County, where party leaders are set to vote on, let me get this straight, whether or not to remove one of their leaders because he's a Muslim?
11: That's right. There's a vice chair of the Tarrant County GOP who is a practicing Muslim. And he is also a city council member at Southlake. And there are some folks within the Tarrant County Republicans who want to get rid of him.
0: Well, they want to get rid of him, but do they specifically say because he is a Muslim, because he's a practicing Muslim?
11: They do. They do. They have tied his um, religion to um, Islamic extremism.
0: It's kind of hard to believe that they think that this is going to be good PR, especially given uh, the results from the last election cycle. But wait, there's more. Uh, Texas GOP platform committee member Ray Myers uh, wrote on Facebook this week. And I'm going to quote here. I'm a white nationalist and very proud of it. What's the story there?
11: Well, I think this reflects, in part because of the president's encouragement of this, you see some people who are equating white nationalism with being patriotic. And of course, you know, that's really a a twisting of what the word actually means. But I don't know that it's widely understood, um, especially perhaps by um, Mr. Myers.
0: What is this doing to the GOP? Because I know that not all Republicans, not all people who uh, who who are party members uh, would would dare to describe themselves as white nationalists, nor uh, work to try to remove uh, a Muslim from party ranks.
11: Right. And it's not just the rank and file. It's the leaders as well. So um, back to the Tarrant County story, uh, the current chair of the Tarrant County Republicans has said very unequivocally, I will not remove him. Someone else will have to do this. And then at the state level, um, the state GOP just endorsed a freedom of religion plank. And so I think that the the local leaders and the state leaders are very aware of the danger that this brings. I am certain that GOP Leaders understand the writing on the wall here.
0: Uh, we uh, can't say goodbye without talking about that Confederate plaque, which uh, is over at the state capitol. It's one been in the news quite a bit. What's taking so long to remove that plaque? Do you think?
11: Uh, I think the election. (laughs) I think that this was first raised back in 2017. Um, And uh, what's really interesting is that the governor, uh, the outgoing speaker, the incoming speaker, uh, even the attorney general have all said, um, this can come down immediately. Um, But I think they were waiting until after the election.
0: Just a few of the stories that uh, you might have missed. It's been a very busy news week. Rebecca Dean's been following it. She's professor and chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Texas at Arlington. Professor, thanks so much for joining us, and have a great weekend. Thanks, you too. And you are listening to The Texas Standard. (music) Joining us to... Tell us what the talk of Texas is on this Friday. It's our social
4: media editor, Wells Dunbar. Hi, David. Well, sticking with state politics a moment longer, the final numbers are in, and Beto O'Rourke raised a whopping 80 million bucks in his unsuccessful attempt to unseat Ted Cruz in the 2018 midterm elections. Yeah, heck well, of a lot of money. And he also spent most of that money, reporting only $477,000 left in his campaign account. Well, this the it must first. have been those yard signs, I think. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably a yard sign, yeah. yeah. A bunch of yard signs. Um, uh, these numbers obviously coming out in his first campaign finance report after the election. Folks sounding off about it on our Facebook page. Kim Soto says, I think he did it right. He left it all in the ring. And I still stand by an earlier statement I made. He did by, more by not winning than some do by winning. Texas will never be the same, in her opinion. Meanwhile, Gil Guerrero calls the fundraising efforts a tribute to how disliked Ted Cruz is. And Marcus Sandy says, "Well, at least big media had a good year selling ads. Yeah, eighty million simoleons—that'll go a long way. Yeah,
0: most of that money does go to media.
4: And and uh, I think lots of people, uh, you know, it seems like the sort of case for Beto mentum on the national level Beto-mentum. has been has been uh, has been uh, snowballing uh, to a certain extent. Lots of people raising whether or not he would be mounting a presidential campaign. And those eye-popping fundraising amounts definitely won't do anything to tamp down." That speculation. No. Uh, you know, what we like to do on Fridays, David, we sort of open it up on our Facebook page and see what our friends and listeners have to say, what's on their minds today, right, this right. Friday, heading into the weekend, Lawrence Strack says december 7th 1941 is on his mind alluding there of course to pearl harbor day, day that will live in infamy and he is not the only one tom smith jones notes that today is pearl harbor day he asks, please take a moment to reflect and honor those who gave their lives in service to the usa that day also wondering what else could be on people's minds uh, marla hughesman grace says i'm in houston so the bad weather and rain heading our way is right. on my mind. Looking there yeah, at the latest forecast, David, it appears you had a flash flood watch today and Saturday. Uh, two, two to five inches expected isolated spots up to 10 inches. So was Could amazing. be kind of crazy out mm-hmm. there this weekend. Mm-hmm. So obviously uh, keep an eye on that. Lots of stuff going on Yeah, there,
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I'm sort of still thinking about the Pearl Harbor day. I had an uncle who was uh, at Pearl Harbor. In fact, he was on the USS Arizona. Oh, uh, goodness. A, a cook. And uh, he used to tell us at uh, Christmas time. He would tell us about you know his stories of of what happened there. And uh, uh, he passed away quite a quite a while ago. But uh, just uh, it's it was one of those events that I think a lot of folks today can't. Quite fathom. It yeah. was such a. Uh, I think probably the closest thing to it, at least in modern times, must must be 9/11 in terms of the the impact on uh, on the nation's yeah. psyche. I suppose you could say.
4: I would think so. And just thinking about uh, you know both 9/11 and Pearl Harbor Day, just the role that social media and communication and instantaneous yeah, right. stuff plays in our lives today, and just how unfathomably different those events would have been uh, with the sort of you know 24-hour uh, connectedness we have today, for good and for ill
0: hard to imagine. Alas, we're out of time for the big broadcast, but we are going to be back here on Monday and we hope you will join us. You can keep up with the news 24-7 at TexasStandard.org and keep it right here to this public radio station for the very latest on the weather. Hope you have a terrific weekend. I'm David Brown along with the rest of the Texas Standard team, wishing you all the very best from Austin.
1: Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family. Would your company or organization like to be a sponsor as well? Contact your local station for opportunities within your community. For statewide sponsorships, visit TexasPublicMediaNetwork.com. PRI, Public Radio International.